Now our book tonight is The Prophecy of Haggai. Haggai, almost the close of the Old Testament. Last uh, Sunday night we looked together at the prophecy of Zephaniah. And uh, between, though these two prophecies occur right next to each other in our Bibles, between the two of them, in their utterance, was a space of some 75 years. Haggai following Zephaniah by about 75 years. How many of you have read this book this today? Would you raise your hand? Oh, that's fine. Thank you. And did you notice that the theme of the prophecy of Haggai is get busy and build the Lord's house? Did you notice that? And did you notice that we're crowded out here on Sunday mornings and we are desperately in need of more building space? And have you any idea what I'm going to preach on tonight? Well, you're wrong. It is true, the theme of this book is to build the Lord's house. But I'm not going to talk about our building program in connection with it. You see, a building is not the house of God. It was in Haggai's day, at least it was a picture, a shadow of the house of God, the true house of God. But you're the true house of God. You both individually and collectively. And in the New Testament, we learn what these shadows pointed toward. They're a picture of the true house of God, which is the believer. And collectively, all believers forming the great house of God, which is the church, the place where God dwells. And that's what he's interested in building. Now, in Haggai's day, it was the temple. And you remember that... Uh, the, they had some difficulty building the temple after the Babylonian captivity. Between this prophecy of Haggai and that of Zephaniah lies this great period of 70 years and more between the captivity of Judah and the restoration under Zerubbabel and later under Nehemiah. And this book and this prophecy should be read in connection with the two historic books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which occur much earlier in the Old Testament. For you recall that according to the prophecies that many of the prophets had spoken, the Babylonian nation was raised up and came sweeping down across the land of Israel and captured Jerusalem. And the people were led as slaves to, Jeruz uh, to Babylon. And the king was taken captive and put, taken, his eyes were put out and he was carried as a captive to Babylon. And there the people stayed in bondage for 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, who had foretold the fact that they would be in captivity exactly 70 years. This, by the way, is one of those remarkable prophecies already fulfilled in which you can see how uh, God speaks through the prophets in a way that no man could speak on his own. And uh, after the 70 years were fulfilled, Daniel, uh, who prophesied in, ba in Babylon, tells us that God began to move to bring the people back to the land. And they came first under this man, Zerubbabel, 
who is mentioned in the opening verse here of the prophecy of, Zach, of Haggai. Zerubbabel was a was the captain uh, of the uh, of the group that came back from Babylon. He was of uh, of royal descent, and he's the one who led the remnant back. And when they came to Jerusalem, they found the city in ruins. Everything was destroyed. The walls were broken down. The temple was utterly destroyed. And they began work, first of all, on the temple. And uh, they had permission from the king of Babylon to begin work on this temple. But they were still under the domain and rule of the Babylonians. And uh, they started working, and they laid the foundation, and perhaps just one row of stones on the, uh, on the temple, a much smaller temple than the original one that stood there that Solomon had built. And then... <clears throat> The work began to lag, and after a bit it utterly ceased. And for 15 years nothing was done on the temple. And this is when Haggai the prophet rises up to speak. And that's the setting of the opening verse of this prophecy. Now Haggai has four messages that he delivers to these people, all within the space of about a year and a half. And they all concern the building of the temple. But they have a deeper message as I have already suggested, in application to us in the temple of the great temple of God, the great house of God that God has been building now for 20 centuries, and the connection with that. And as we read this prophecy then, read it not only as the message of the prophet to the people of his day about building the literal temple, but see it also as a message to the people of God everywhere as to their responsibility in building the great house of God, the temple that the Holy Spirit has been building out of human hearts for 20 centuries. Now let's look at the prophecy. There are four messages, as I've suggested, and they're dated by the calendar. And each one reveals an excuse for the people for not working on the temple, an excuse that they were giving, and the real reason Behind that excuse. Now the first one is in verses 1 through, uh, in, in chapter 1 really, it occupies the whole of the chapter here. And we read, in the second year of Darius the king, that is the king of Babylon, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, governor under the king of Babylon and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now the prophecy was addressed to the civil governor and to the religious head, Joshua and Zerubbabel. And in this verse, the prophet repeats the excuse that the people were giving for leaving the temple abandoned for 15 years. They were saying, well, the time has not yet come. There's been a mistake in figuring the 70 years that, Je that Jeremiah prophesied. And, of course, there's no use doing anything now because God is not ready yet. The time has not yet come. And the prophet says rather ironically, almost sarcastically to this people, this is what you're saying. <laughs> this people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the answer of God is found in verses 3 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. In other words, says God, is it really the problem that you, you think it's not yet time for me to work? Well, isn't it amazing that it's time, you consider it time for me to work in helping you build your houses? How about mine? And he rather ironically suggests here to them that their interests, the real reason why the work of God has lagged is because they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. And they've put God's work secondary and their own needs primary. You see, they'd forgotten something. The fact that they were there in the land itself proves that God's time had come. They wouldn't be back there if those 70 years had not been fulfilled. They wouldn't be in the place where the temple could have been built if it wasn't God's time to do it. And the real reason, therefore, was that they were not willing to put God first. Their own comforts and their own convenience and their own desires came first. They were building their own houses, but they let God's lag. Now, God says, I want you to see what the results of this is. You've given this as your reason, but your real reason is because you're thinking of your own needs first. You've put your work first and mine second. Now see what happens to you as a result. And three times he says, consider, consider, consider. Notice, verse 5, consider how you fare. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. You see, they had inflation in those days, too. <laughs> He's saying, all this labor and work that you put out doesn't give you what you expect. You're trying to get prosperous, but prosperity eludes you. You're trying to satisfy yourselves, but you never find the answer. There is something always missing. Then he goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you fared. Again, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. Why? Well, because you've looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while you busy yourselves each with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought upon the land, and the hills upon the grain, the new wine, the oil, upon what the ground brings forth, upon men and cattle, and upon all their labors. God says, I'm behind this. Now, why did he do this? Why did he short-circuit all their efforts to uh, bring prosperity and all? Was it because he was trying to punish them? No, God never punishes in that sense. He was trying to wake them up. He was trying to show them that there is an infallible rule that runs all through Scripture and all through life that men are constantly trying to reverse that says, Seek ye first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That the way to have what you need in terms of of, of physical food and material shelter and the necessities of life is to give your major concern and interest not to these, but to advancing God's work. That's what you're here for. And you remember how beautifully the Lord Jesus captures this same thought in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, in those words I've just quoted, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that men are grubbing after and trying so desperately to get hold of will be taken care of you. Why? Because you have a Father in heaven who knows your need along this line, and he's perfectly able to supply it, and he will through the normal labor and, and activity, as long as your interest is, first of all, in his work. Now, you see, that's right up to date, isn't it? That's calling us back to this great principle that the New Testament reminds us of, that we are not our own. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. We belong to him. We're here to advance his cause, his interests. We're here to build the house of God. That's what we're in this world for. That's why God has left us here. That we might be his instruments in this magnificent work of erecting a great temple of human beings, which will be and is the habitation of God, the dwelling place of God. Now, is that first in our interests? Is that what we live for? Or is it that we might get a new color TV set or a better automobile or more material gain or a more beautiful home? or better draperies and a softer rug, and keep up with the Joneses. Now, not that those things are all denied to Christians. We understand that. God sometimes, in his grace and goodness, gives wealth to Christians. And they're to use it, as Paul reminds us in his letter to Timothy, in being generous and in giving richly and freely. But... Uh, uh, God has called us primarily to put the building of the house of God first. Not a building, you see, not, not this building, but the church of God. And there are people all around us that God the Holy Spirit intends to add to the house of God if we are channels of his instrument in his working. And the great question that Haggai confronts us is, how can we find time to advance our interests so eagerly, so carefully, so thoughtfully, spending so much time thinking about advancing our own material gain, and then excuse ourselves on the work of the building of the house of God by saying, well, it isn't time yet. You remember, you, you remember those, that story of William Carey, the father of modern missions, who uh, in 18th century England got concerned about India far across the sea and prayed that God would somehow reach those poor benighted heathen who'd never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he tried to stir up interest in the churches of England. And everywhere he met, he met with adamant resistance to this idea of sending out missionaries to those poor heathen. And in one meeting, 
after an impassioned plea on Carey's part that they would send him out as a missionary, even though he was a simple cobbler, uneducated, a shoemaker, he was willing to go. One of the uh, elders of the meeting stood up afterward, and he pointed his finger at him and he said, Young man, sit down. When God wants to evangelize the heathen, he'll evangelize them without your help. And it was this kind of stubborn resistance that Kerry met with. But he was a man who couldn't be defeated. And he was used of God to begin the great modern missionary movement that hasn't stopped yet. Because he was a one who was concerned about God's work. And I was speaking this morning about the excitement that comes into a life when we're when we actually, really, genuinely put first the, the affairs of, of God, the concern of God in our neighborhood, and put secondary, don't even bother to think about it, except as God makes possible through our normal labor the, provide, the provision of our own needs. This is what he's talking about. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day. Well... They, they started. This worked. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, at, as the Lord their God had sent him, and had the people feared before the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what a message. I am with you, says the Lord. You can count on that. I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month. (laughs) They went to work. How long did it last? Three weeks. And then it ground to a halt again. Because notice the calendar. This is the prophecy with a calendar in it. In the second year of Darius the king, that's the same year, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, 21 days later, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Now again, God is repeating what the people were saying. They got started, and the temple began to go up. And things, there was a bustle of excitement. And then some old man who had been just a child when they were carried captive into Babylon and had seen the temple of Solomon in all its great glory came down to watch the work one day. And like old men sometimes will, he was living in the past. And he said, you call this a temple? This heap of ruins here? Why, you should have seen the temple. Why, I saw Solomon's temple. And what you're building here is, why, it's nothing compared to Solomon's temple. 
All the gold and the silver that was in that temple was amazing to see. And you don't have any gold or silver. What are you going to put in this temple? How are you going to decorate it? And the people got discouraged. And they said, you know, he's right. We don't have any gold and silver. We don't have anything to make this temple beautiful at all. What's the use? Why work? And so they quit. Well, the word of the Lord said, Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. On what basis, Lord? Work, he says. Work, for I am with you. That's always God's answer. Work, for I am with you. Don't worry about the fact that things don't look as good as they ought to. For you see, they were suffering from a false evaluation here. Don't worry about that. Listen, he says. Work, for I am with you. According to the promise that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you, fear not. Now listen. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. I'm going to rearrange history. I'm going to do some remarkable things among the people. When he says he's shaking the nations and the people and the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean literally. It means symbolically, figuratively. He's going to rearrange the whole historical picture. And he's going to do something. I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. You don't need to worry about that. I've got all we need of that. And if I wanted this house decorated with gold and silver, I could stack it up in piles here on your back step. I've got all it takes. But that isn't the kind of glory I have in mind. I'm going to fill this house with splendor, and the latter splendor, says the Lord of hosts, of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. God's like that. He says, look, you're discouraged because you think what you're doing isn't going to amount to anything. But don't stop work because of that. I've got a different plan in mind. This house, little as it is, unpretentious as it is, without gold or silver, is actually going to have greater glory in it than the glory of the previous temple. Now, those words were fulfilled. You know how? Well, it was into that house there came one day one who said, who finding it filled with, with money changers, overthrew the tables, drove out the money changers, and said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, and he made it a place of prayer. And he cleansed it. And he filled it with the glory of his teaching. And he stood in the midst and said things such as people never heard before. And he utterly changed the whole life of that nation and every nation in the world by what he said. And there went out from that house, changed and altered a little bit by Herod, but the same house, there went out a glory that has never ceased. Different kind of glory. You see, don't stop work because it doesn't look like it's going to amount to something that was there in the past. This is one of the problems of God's people. 
We're always looking back to the past, aren't we? We say, oh, for the days of D.L. Moody. Oh, for the days of uh, the church where we came from. That's, oh, what we did then. Or when we were young. Oh, for those days. And we think if we could just have it that way. But the great lesson God wants to impress upon us is, God always does a new work and a different work. And the thing that is coming in the future is always better than the past. At least better for our present situation. We don't need to hang on to these things of tradition. God is saying, keep on working. I am with you. And when I'm in your midst, you don't need to worry about how it's going to turn out. It may be different, but it'll always be better. Well, that went on for a while. Then what? Well, they quit again. And on the tenth, in the tenth verse, we read, on the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, that's two months later, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest to decide this question. If one carries holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and touches with his skirt bread or portage or pottage or wine or holy or, or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? This was accordance with the law of Moses. If you get into a situation, Moses said, where you don't know what to do, go ask the priest to declare the great principle that covers this and then make an application from that. Same thing we're told to do. When you get into a situation you don't know what to do, go to the word of God and get the principle that covers. And this was the question they were to ask the priest. Look, if you've got something unclean about you and you touch uh, something else, uh, a bit of bread or wine or oil, does that become holy because you've got holy flesh in you? Does that make the other, the unclean thing holy? And the priest answered correctly, no. Well, then he put another question. Then said Haggai, if one who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, yes, it does. It does become unclean. Now, what's this all about? What's the problem here? Well, we read on and we'll see. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Pray now, consider what will come to pass from this day onward. Before a stone was placed upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I smote you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. What does he mean? Well, if you read between the lines, you can see again what the people were saying. They were saying, look, we've been working on the temple now for two months. You said that the problem of why we were having such a hard time materially and physically was because we weren't working on the temple. We've been working on the temple now for two months and 21 days, and we're still having a hard time. What's the matter? Why work? Nothing's happening. Doesn't work. 
Did you ever say that? You see, they were the same kind of people we are, aren't they? They wanted instant results. I've straightened everything out now, Lord. Yesterday. Today, everything ought to go great. That right? A couple came to see me not long ago, not from the congregation, and the man said, my wife is, we just can't live together. She's always blowing up and exploding and bawling me out about everything. And, uh, and I examined into it and I found out that major, the major reason was that here was a man who paid no attention to his wife. Utterly neglected her. And she'd take it so long, then she'd blow up. So I told him this. And he listened. And he said, I think you're right. And so he went home to do something about it. And the next morning he called me up. And he said, well, I took her out to dinner last night. And we had a great time. And we had, and she enjoyed it so much. And he said, I thought you were right. But he said, you know, this, uh, this morning... She blew up again. And the thing doesn't work. And I had to say to him what, what Haggai says to these people. Do you think that the results, the deep pollution of sin that's been going on for years is going to be cured overnight when you start doing the right thing? That's what he's saying. Do you think that all this, these habits of wrong thinking that have been deeply ingrained in your mind are suddenly going to be eliminated like that simply because you begin to operate on the right basis? No, we need time and patience. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Now keep on. And notice this word of encouragement in verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? You plant your seed and you don't expect instant results, do you? <laughs> you expect to wait till the harvest. It takes time for the seed to grow. Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree still yield nothing? Well then, from this day on, I will bless you. Don't worry now. Keep on. Don't stop work just because you don't see instant results. If you're doing the right thing, keep on. And the results will come. Well, once again, they needed a little encouragement. And so another message came, the last one. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the very same day, the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his fellow. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, a mark of authority. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, here was a special word of encouragement to the leader. For here they were ringed about yet with the authority of Babylon. And though they were back in the land, and though they were building the temple again, they were still beset by many problems. Everywhere they looked, there was the challenge of authority, of a foreign power. They saw chariots everywhere and soldiers marching through the streets. 
and all the signs of bondage. And their hearts grew fearful. And they said, when will it ever be? Are we ever going to be free? And God says, don't worry. I've got a program going that's going to reverse this whole thing. I'll destroy the power of this kingdom. I'll bring their chariots to naught. I'll break you loose from the bondage of this people. And I'm going to take Zerubbabel, the man who stands for the leader of the people, and make him a signet ring. Now, Zerubbabel, remember, was of the royal line, the line of David. And though these words were not <clears throat> literally fulfilled of Zerubbabel, they were of his descendant, who was Jesus of Nazareth. And in Jesus, God fulfilled all these words. He took the son of David and he made him a signet ring by which all the nations shall ultimately be ruled. Now, you see, what is all this word to us? It's a word of encouragement in a day of darkness. A word of rising up and acting now. Build now. Don't wait. The work of God needs to be done now. Not next year. Not ten years from now. Now. Are your homes open? Are your lives ready? A great harvest field is before us here on the peninsula and around the world. Opportunities abound as they never have before. Is this first in your prayers? First in your interests? That this great harvest may be reaped? Are your homes open that some of these international students that are here with us might find a place of refuge and, and friendship, communion? Are your homes open to the, the students uh, on the throng our campuses that they might come to Christ and your neighbors, that they might come in and find a, a friendly heart and a ready smile and a welcome? and a ready ear to listen? How much are we ready to build the house of the Lord? This is always the key, isn't it? This is the work of the Spirit. When all that man has done around us crumbles into nothing, and all the vast civilizations that we vaunt ourselves upon and think are so mighty, and these great secrets that men have discovered of nature are forgotten, the one thing that will last is the work of the Lord, the house of God that he's building now. Are we investing in eternal things? That's Haggai's word. Our Father, we pray that we may listen with keen ears to these words and hear them anew in our own lives, making application to our own hearts as the Spirit of God prompts us in this moment. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.